Ladies, gents, and germaphobes, I want to welcome you to season four of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. In 2019, I wrote a book to exercise the demons I'd picked up over a long decade of owning, brewing, and operating a brewery in Texas with my beautiful wife. That book is the same name as this podcast, and you really should pick it up on Amazon. Even brewers and bartenders can afford 18 bucks. What you're about to put in your ears is the only podcast that tells the truth in craft beer. I interview dead and dying breweries to learn what went wrong. I talk with breweries I think have a unique position in the marketplace to find out what they did right. I talk to distributors because they're a big part of the worst part of this industry. And I'm even sticking a microphone in the faces of cider, spirits, and mead makers. And yes, I do talk a lot of shit and piss off more than a few people in this industry. But I'm happy to be the crap beer pariah, trademark, because I'm here for one reason and one reason only, to make you better in your careers. My guests and I want happiness and financial success for each of you. We want you to avoid the mistakes we made. And since no one else has the stones to share how to do that with you, it has fallen to us. And trust me, we are up to the task. So sit back, listen in, and let us teach you how not to start a damn brewery. It's all about the reality of the cash flow. And if you don't have a way of measuring it, you might as well just sit there and drink a six-pack and fantasize about it, but never do it, because you're going to fail. That's the reality. Jim and Betsy Pence have been around the old block a few times. After a love of wine led to a love of crap beer, which opened the door to a love of mead, they decided to do what many of you are deciding to do. They wrote a business plan and set about opening their very own craft meadery in Charlotte, North Carolina. They chased after their dream, they bought equipment, they started brewing, and then they closed down almost immediately. And they did that two more times. Jim has joined us today to share what he's learned by traversing the rocky road of building a business lease problems, real estate negotiations, supply chain issues, budget constraints, and just about everything in between. Not surprisingly, Craft Mead faces much of the same bullshit Craft Beer faces. And after three failed attempts, Jim and Betsy's story and their certainty that they'll never do it again are an important lesson for the rest of us. So listen in, listen up, as we share the story of Shepherd's Meadery. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. So, Jim, I want to thank you for talking. Thanks for sharing. And thanks, most of all, for giving a super sweet be laid fuck about helping my guests be better in their careers, which is my version of an intro. So thank you and welcome today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Before we get to your story, your commentary, the booze biz and all that kind of stuff, I want to kind of know about you. Like where are you from? What do you love to do? You know, who are you? Who who, who is the uh, the shepherd's uh-huh. meadery guy? All right. Well, my name is Jim Pence. Uh, originally born in Philadelphia back 1959. Went to Penn State, got three different degrees there and uh, spent my early career as a defense engineer for a bit. Then uh, when the Berlin Wall and all that stuff kind of came down in the early 90s, the defense industry budgets shrunk. So I invoked my golden rule of employment. 
which is do unto your employer before your employer does unto you. <laughs> so we decided Happy Valley in Pennsylvania there, where State College, Penn State. It's a beautiful place, but the weather really sucks. And after being there for 36 plus years, my wife and I decided if we were going to relocate, it was going to be down to North Carolina. So luckily for us at the time, banks were taking off in the Charlotte area and they're looking for people with some quantitative skills, I guess you want to call it. But lucky for me, I hired on beginning 95 and has been doing that ever since. It's around 2010 for our 25th wedding anniversary. We took a trip out to uh, wine country with really good friends of ours that we knew back from Pennsylvania. And I'm not a wine guy. I'm a beer guy. And so back then, my you know, beer of choice was Molson Ice or Molson Triple X, which you couldn't get down in my county here in North Carolina because the alcohol level was too high back then. So out in Northern California there, after about two days of touring different wineries, my wife knew I had had my fill of wine. And we walked into in one of the local wineries and the young lady behind the, the counter, she's all perky. She sees four of us and she says, oh, will that be four glasses today? And I said, nah, just three. And she could see her deflate, you know, like one of those <laughs> you know, balloons at there, those things at a car dealership, right? My wife then says the prophetic words, my husband would sell his soul for a good beer. So suddenly the girl perks back up and says, do you realize some of the best craft beer in the United States comes from Northern California? And my wife says, no, we didn't know that. Tell us more. So she said, well, right down the road in Santa Rosa is a Russian River Brewing Company. All right. So that night we went there and we walk in and get seated and the server says, okay, you know, what can I get you guys? So I said, what are you guys known for? And he gets very indignant at that time and looks down his nose upon me like, what are you, an idiot? How could you says, not know what we're known for? Yeah. He goes, Pliny the Elder. And I said, well, excuse me. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a Molson Canadian beer drinker. And I said, well, what style is that? He says, it's an IPA. And I said, well, what's an IPA? So I got some more consternation. And then he said, it's a hoppy beer. It's it's an extremely popular beer. So our family's first introduction to craft beer was a Pliny the Elder. It was eye-opening and life-changing as it turned out. And 20, 20 pounds later of a, a beer drinking. That's a high mark with that early on, too. That's, uh, that's a good Yeah. One. Well, what's funny is we then got into brewing our own in 2013. And a guy who was husband of a woman my wife worked with was an avid home brewer. And up to that point in my life, I'd only had two home brews and they both sucked. <laughs> so I said to my wife, really, you want me to waste time with this guy, Bill? And he's, he was older than me, former military guy, super nice guy. And he says, well, look, why don't we have you over for a party and we'll serve one of our home brews and you tell me what you think. So we get over to their place. It was uh, right around Halloween, actually, and had this beer. I was like, you made this? <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, wow, this is really good. And I said, you think you could teach me? Because my wife wanted my oldest son and I to do it as if we didn't already have enough hobbies together. You know, what was one more? You know, A few months later, we went over to this guy's house and the first beer we brewed with him was a Pliny the Elder clone. Really? And yeah, on, on his system. And then we replicated you know, all the equipment he had when we started making our own. So uh, we've been brewing since uh, 2013. And fast forward to about 2017, you know, 2018, I had my first mead experience, which turns out to be very similar to my first craft beer experience with respect to setting the bar high. Mm. Uh, my, my, my nephew up in uh, Rochester, New York was in town and um, he, he brought some mead from a place called Pips in Chicago. And again, I know nothing about mead at the time. And he pops this little, you know, six ounce, 187 mil bottle. I was like, geez, that's pretty small. He goes, well, don't worry. He goes, you're not going to want a lot of this. It's pretty sweet. <laughs> 
So it was a, um, it's called blue, blue suede, blue suede shoes. It's, it's a cashew and blueberry meat. It's like, again, renowned. Mm-hmm. So I take a sip of this. So I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. And so again, talked about setting the bar high that got us, you know, our intro into mead. Just curious from a palate perspective, what what was your favorite style of beer at this point when you first tasted a mead? Oh, we were big IPA people. Yeah. I mean, so I, I got into very competitive home brewing. In fact, I did a Pliny the Younger, right? The triple IPA version for the first competition we ever entered, 155 other brewers. We, we won best of show with the Pliny mm-hmm. the Younger clone. Uh, I mean, it's just a big flavor bomb pops, right? So that was really our specialty was for West Coast IPAs. And some of the New England style morphed into the scene. We started making some of those as well. And then most recently, we've been making a fair number of pastry stouts because that's become a pretty big thing nationwide. It's mm-hmm. big again, kind of diabetes in the bottle, heavily adjuncted, you know, with all the crazy, you know, dessert flavors, if you will, you know, coming in between 10, 11 percent. Because I was spending a bunch of money every week buying bottles of it locally <laughs> and decided it was probably more economical if I learned. So, my, my MO is back when I was trying to learn about certain beers that I wanted to make, especially from the West Coast, because they weren't available here in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, where we are, is I would actually guess what the head brewer's email address was. Didn't take much of a guess, right? First name at brewerycompany.com. And every time I sent an email to these guys, they all responded with some helpful information on how to make a clone of their beer. You know, so I really wasn't blowing smoke up their ass by saying, hey, I love your beer. I really did. But just say, you know, we can't get it here where I live. You know, I would love to make a a homebrew version of it. You know, can you help a brother out? And every one of them did it. And so I had done that for a few years after we got into kind of a regular routine of making that style. But when we got into the pastry stouts, I did the same thing with a brewery in Tampa called Angry Chair which I think is a fantastic uh, stout brewery. And same thing, I guess the guy's name and ask him about some little tidbits of, of wisdom. And sure enough, he responded and gave me a lot of helpful pointers. So As I've heard of a few breweries that actually will not allow that information to come out. And all like the owners will have said, these are proprietary, you know, recipes or concepts or whatever, but at the end of the day, they're not, but I think that's cool that, you know, someone, especially I mean, Angry Chair is well known that they were willing to share. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I, we, so we, we go down there every year for Tampa Bay beer week to us. It's the best week in craft. <laughs> We've been to there in San Fran. And so when you go to their place, the vibe isn't very friendly and welcoming. <laughs> the, the bartenders, they don't know you as a local, they, they kind of just diss you. And so that's, you, to, you kind of get how to get past that. But this guy as a head brewer was exactly the opposite. He was very willing to share information and we made our first one and it really went over well, you know, with friends of ours, but uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a side, uh, you know, way ahead of this story, but back to the mead, the thing guy who taught me to, to brew, who I, I, I nicknamed him Mr. White from, from Breaking Bad. And I was his, his first Jesse. Did you do it in your underwear? Not that crazy. Uh, okay. I was making sure with the reference. Yeah, we, we we had you know we had a little RV thing right, and, uh, <laughs> our, our our mobile brewing lab right. But uh, he also made mead, and he said, "Well, there's one book out there. It's called The Complete Mead Maker from Ken Schramm, who owns Schramm's Meadery in Detroit." And he goes, "Everybody who gets into making mead, this is the Bible." So I went out and I read it, you know, backwards and forwards, upside down, and every which way. And so I started to make mead, and it actually is a lot easier to make mead than it is beer. 
you don't need all the equipment up front. You go right into the fermenter. So mm -hmm. it's exactly like making wine, but instead of using grapes as your fermentable, using honey and potentially other fruits as the base of the sugars. So again, the process, it's it's easier, actually. It's less expensive from a, an equipment perspective. And it's same concepts, though, with brewing, right? It's all about sanitation and, and keeping everything clean from the little critters. So we made our first one. It was a key lime pie mead. And friends of ours drank on it. And they said, wow, this is really good. So you know, positive feedback. We started making more and more different varieties and just scoured the internet for there's various clubs out there. Then we actually joined the American Mead Maker Association, not as professionals, but just as home brewers, if you will. And they've got an annual conference. They've got all those things are on. They recorded them all. So I paid my membership fee. I watched all those. And then a guy up at Melavino Meadery in Northern Jersey, he started a podcast called Mead Made Right. And he and I became friends. And I would call in the show and ask, because he would actually do recipe requests and build them on the air during the show. He put all that in a database on his website. And he also has done different speeches, you know, presentations at MeadCon talking about starting a meadery. So it wasn't all the fun and glory of making mead. He actually talked about the business side. Nuts and bolts. Yeah. Yeah. Fast forward about another year and we went to that mead conference. We met him personally and gave him a sample of a cherry mead that we made. And he takes a sip of it. He goes, hey, man, can I have some more? <laughs> so that was sort of the first indication that uh, the things were good. Because I told my wife when we went to it, because we were kind of throwing around the idea of, of starting a meadery because there really weren't any here in Charlotte. And there's really not that many you know, across the country either. So um, I said, when we go up there, let's get some professional feedback. Because our friends can be blowing smoke up our ass saying, oh, yeah, this is great, right? But the point is, I don't want them telling me if it's great. I would ask one question to my friends. Would you pay for this? And I said, be honest. I said, if you tell me yes and you wouldn't, you're actually not doing me any favors. <laughs> you're right? going to put me in a bad spot eventually. Yeah. Right. And we've had some crappy meads from professional meaderies around the country, unfortunately. So I assume it's fairly similar, but... Just because uh, most of my audience, obviously, is going to be primarily beer-oriented, what would make a mead, quote-unquote, crappy? And obviously, fermentation issues, but outside of that, I'm curious, what, what do you taste that was bad and why? The problem with mead, because it's, it's higher alcohol typically, you can make it anywhere from 6% to you know 20% and you're using wine yeast. But if you don't control the fermentation, you're going to get a bunch of fusels and it'll come across as rocket fuel. And that's how you know someone didn't have good temp control. They didn't feed. See, the thing about the fermentation difference between beer and mead is honey is nutrient deficient, right? The, the nitrogen in there, it's really non-existent. So you have to give, there's products out there, one's called Fermade. And, you know, there's equations and things. You got to put a certain amount of grams per gallon every few days to provide that nutrient-rich environment for the yeast to flourish, basically the first three days. So similar to beer, that process control is critical to making a good product. And so it's not just temp control, but it's making sure it's a nutrient-rich environment. The wort from beer is already nutrient-rich, and there's really not much you have to do where you're not putting any extra additions in, but you have to feed the must. That's what it's called. Similar to wine, the, you know, the liquid is called must. They use the same term. But in the wine world, the grapes in those fruits do provide some nutrients, but even there, you should put in some additional of these things to help with the fermentation. But it, in a honey base, you really need it. And if it's not done correctly, the stressed yeast will put off a bunch of off flavors. And then mm -hmm. you also got risk of stuck fermentation because these are higher alcohol, right? 
So similar exact problems that a, a brewer has exist because it's, it's a fermentation as well. It's a different source of sugar and the off flavors, you know, you won't get the, okay, it's, you know, been overly exposed to oxygen. You don't get, you know, the stale cardboard or wet cardboard thing, but you get these fusel alcohols. And there's a lot of undrinkable mead. I'm sure a lot of your audience, if they've gone to a Renaissance festival in their area, <laughs> they probably had the traditional mead, which is just honey and water. Mm-hmm. Those those typically aren't very good. There's not much flavor. So the meads that are very popular are called melomels, which we actually adjunct the honey with fruits and lots of fruits. You can make these big fruit bombs is what we call them. You typically would use a a tart berry or fruit because that helps balance, it's obviously, the sweetness. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So at this point, you were a light beer drinker. You get hooked on IPAs, you brew IPAs, and then one day you taste a mead and the trajectory is completely different. Uh, were you still brewing beer at the time? Yep. Or is it so I'm curious what made you decide that you wanted to be a, a, a meter, a, a mead maker? A, what do you A what mead you maker. It? Yeah. It's, it's, unfortunately, there's no fancy words. Uh, it's just a mead maker. It's because we liked the product so much and we saw the flexibility of it with respect to, as I mentioned earlier, you can ferment this out to a 6% session mead, mm-hmm. or you can make this a 20% you know, after dinner type of mead. So the palate of that flexibility of the alcohol content, you can serve them still or carbonated. So the big niche market that's been growing recently are these session meads. And it's the gateway for craft beer drinkers, in my opinion, to get into meads. So these would be five to 7% and they're served chilled and carbonated. So it's got a, a very similar feel to a craft beer. And you can also make these things dry, right? You've got dry wines, you've got sweet wines. Same thing here. You can make it low alcohol, dry, low alcohol, sweet, right? So all the permutations are out there, which makes this thing so uh, appealing to a wide base of consumers. There's something for everybody out there is the bottom line. For us, we saw the fact that there weren't many meteries in the United States, but as we did our research, it turns out it was actually the fastest growing proportionally of the craft industry. Again, small denominator, right? So it's easy to have 20% annual right. growth when you, only, when you only have 100 meteries, for example, right, to start with. So we saw that there was a, an opportunity. Like I said, there was only one meadery in Charlotte, but it was mead and cider and wine are the same license from the federal government's perspective. So if you make one of those, you can make all three of them. So what you'll see often is a cidery primarily will do mead sort of on the side. And that's what it's, the one was. They, they kind of have the equipment for it already and it's one of exactly, the different ingredients. Exactly right. So the one in Charlotte was doing very dry meads and not these big sweet fruit bombs. So we figured, okay, there's no competition. So we, we weren't coming into a saturated market like I'm sure a lot of your listeners had to deal with when they were trying to start up a brewery. Especially now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So the novelty of it, the fact that it was a, a growth market and that we were getting good professional feedback on what we were producing. Because in fact, I talk about the PIPs. A month after I went to that conference, the PIPs annual member party out in Chicago was going on. And my nephew, who I mentioned earlier, invited me to be his plus one. So again, we could bring samples to share with everybody at the party. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the people there was the owner, the, the head mead maker from Pips. So I gave him a sample of another one of my meads. And he said to me, would you mind giving me more information on how you made this? And I said, I have no problems at all sharing. You tell me what you want to know. Mm-hmm. So here is, so if you look on Untappd, key in, you know, type in Pips Meadery is the number one ranked craft establishment on Untapped, right? 
So here's the guy at the Pentecostal. Well, well, beer and meat, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. all the all the breweries are on Untapped too, right? Yeah. And so are meateries and cideries. But the highest ranked business, if you will, on Untapped is Pips. You know, from the people's everybody caps, right? So, so bottom line was here's the guy who's basically you know the, the Mensa nationwide, you know the savant, and he's he's liking our product. So between him and the other couple of guys I met a month before who were from the industry giving us thumbs up. That's what gave us, you know, the encouragement to 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 move forward with trying to open up our business. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. And that's and that's when the non-fun began. <laughs> well, and that's a big part of what I want to hear about. So uh, you know, again, one of the things that I really want to hear from you is a lot of the experience of what you had going into it. And I am not going to you know, give it away the, the ending just yet, but I think we have a very interesting um, final wrap up with it. But first, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to hear about that, like how you transitioned into the business plan and the actual going into the, the building itself. So uh, take a quick break and we'll be right back to your bit. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they've got you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at brewerydirect at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. Well, welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, I think it's now time that we get into the uh, the idea of business. So you had a very similar trajectory from a lot of the brewers, especially the homebrew side, where you made a product people liked, people wanted to drink it. And then you decided at some point to take that and make a commercial entity out of it and hopefully, you know, make money. So tell me how that went. So from like, let's, let's start a pips, right? You go to pips, you have this idea already. You're like, okay, he likes it. The other guy liked it. I'm going, what do you do next? Do you write a business plan? Do you sign a lease on a building? What was your plan? Uh, all the above. Again, I was, had already done a lot of research through uh, the AMMA. As I said, they had all their previous conferences recorded. I, I knew not to take this lightly and just assume because friends and family liked the product that you know, we were going to make a business, a successful business out of this. So I did spend a fair amount of time all throughout this time period leading up to getting professional feedback, hoping that we could move forward. So I was already doing some prep work and I am not a business person. I'm an engineer and mathematician by by training, but at least I knew what to go look for. And so, uh, in fact, one of the resources on the AMMA you know, membership were some sample business plans that other meteries had willingly mm-hmm. shared, right? And so I'd done a bunch of research on Google as well, how to put together. First of all, we wanted to make sure not to invest money that we couldn't lose. So I was looking at it as if I was going to Vegas, right? If my budget was a hundred bucks or a hundred thousand bucks, whatever that number was, in Vegas, that was my budget, right? Because I said, I'm going to expect to spend that money, not lose it. I'm going to spend it for fun and no expectations. You know, don't invest what you can't afford to lose. Not at my age. I mean, I was almost 60 years old at the time and only planning to work for about five more years. So I was looking at this to be something to do in retirement. 
more full-time. But in between then, that concept start and then have it be a business, but I wasn't going to be married to the business per se. It would still be, I'd say, I won't say more of a hobby, but one that wasn't, I wasn't going to need the money from it to sustain the lifestyle that we had. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to quit my job. I wanted to get to retirement, get to the finish line. But I really want to take advantage of the business opportunity because the product was booming until COVID hit, right? Nationally. This mm -hmm. was in the, the fall of 2019 when we decided, let's go into this. We actually bought, my wife's a, a realtor, we actually bought a 600 square foot little office space in a heart of what's called Noda, North Davidson District here. It's a hipster district. There's breweries, there's lots of craft. It was the perfect location. My wife being a realtor says, location, location, location. So this was a an empty space, 600 square feet, and we were going to use that for our tap room. So we would have to have upfit costs, obviously. And then separately, a few miles away, we found sort of industrial space, 1,000 square feet to do the actual production. For the size and scale we were going to be doing, we certainly didn't need a lot of upfitting there, but we needed, we wanted a floor drain. And that's when the first kind of gotcha occurred insofar as budgets. Mm -hmm. We actually had gotten our TTB license by the end of 2019 it took 17 days. You only go on the federal website. They do their background check on the on the owner. They determine we're not money laundering. We get a permit. Hey, we're we're very excited now. We had the thing hanging up in the on the wall in our production space. Looks and official. We, yeah. yeah, exactly. And we start buying used equipment. So we you know got some tanks and you know we knew we needed a pump. A pump obviously is the heart of any brewing or winery or meatery operation. So we, we started getting that infrastructure built out. And you know, try to do it in budget by buying used equipment, and and we had good good luck doing that. And then we looked into getting a contractor to put a, a simple floor drain in. It's only about ten feet long, what five inches wide. The guy wants thirty thousand dollars to do this, and it was an incredible shock to the system. You should ask him how much two would be. I said it would be probably cheaper. <laughs> yeah. So that was really the first negative experience we had in the project today because we found you know, a good, good spot for the tap room. We found a good spot for the production that was, you know, the rent wasn't too expensive. So again, we're all excited, my wife and I, and we're in budget. And then we get this quote and we decided to hold off. We figured we might be able to work around the floor drain issue and not even do that in that space. So we turned our attention to the tap room because that's where obviously the revenue was going to be generated. Uh, you know, we had a business model of looking to sell these session beers on, or beers, <laughs> session meads on draft, but then also have those big pips slash shram style bottles that you would do by the poor and then have those as retail for the to-go. And we were actually talking to some local, we were very embedded in the local craft beer communities. We had support from other breweries and we picked their brains on the process you know, to start and they were going to actually carry our product. We were going to do some distro too self-distro. So, you know, I had revenue models in Excel spreadsheets. I, I thought I'd really done my homework on that side. And I felt very comfortable knowing what it was going to cost to make the product and what I thought the market would bear to sell it. Then the second big obstacle occurred, which was dealing with the city of Charlotte from a permitting perspective. Now, Charlotte, you know, it's a fairly large metropolitan area and we have upwards of 50 breweries now. So it wasn't like we were brand new to the scene asking them to do something that they had never done before. Mm -hmm. Well, but you would have thought that that was the case. There's a reason why people got to get to work for the government 
not in private industry. So we expected we'd walk in there and get a playbook, right? You know, here's a, here's a sheet, 10 pages, do A, B, and C. Here's your checklist. Nope. No one there could really navigate in a clear fashion what all had to be done. So that was a bit disturbing. You know, I, I, what was, the, a, what was the expectation? Go figure it out and then come back and we'll write you a permit if you did it right? Yep. And then if you don't, be, we won't? Right. There's this continuous <laughs> iteration, right? You're like in this infinite do loop in a, in, a, in, a, you know, in a computer language. Go do some of this stuff, then have us come check it out. And then we'll tell you, oh, no, that's not what we wanted. So it's so dependent upon who you get connected with, mm -hmm. right? Like any kind of building inspection. One guy or one woman could pass something. And someone else, there'll be a stickler on that. And then you have to deal with the fire, right? So we had the fire chief in. He checked off. Things were fine. So in, in our production space, my wife got so frustrated that a friend of ours who was a co-owner of a very small brewery, he was, he was a professional engineer. So we actually paid him to, to basically run interference for us and do all this interaction. So that took a lot of burden off my wife. But of course, you know, we're writing a check to him right. as a taxi meter. We, we're, we're on the clock with this guy, right? He's billing us by the hour. So fast forward you know, another few weeks and we've hired an architect to come up with the drawings for the plan for the tap room. So now we're into February of 2020, which mm -hmm. unfortunately was kind of close to ground zero time of the pandemic. When did North Carolina shut down? Well, so we were in Tappan Bay Beer Week, March 13th, the, the night before the the, the the capstone event down there, which is called Hunapu Day. It's a 5,000 person outdoor festival, got canceled. Hmm. And in fact, we met a, a, a guy and his son from Finland. They got trapped. They, 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 couldn't, they, get couldn't, back. they couldn't get back. And they, they were stuck in the United States for like two months. It was crazy. Yeah, I interviewed so, a guy from Vietnam that has a brewery over there and he had the same problem. He was stuck here for like six months, beer and tanks, wow. it all went to shit. Like he it was just a mess. Wow. So we decided maybe we should put tamp the brakes on this and kind of let let, let the three weeks to, to break the bust the curve, whatever they call it, flatten the curve occur. Right. We'll we'll get back at it in April. Sure. Yeah. 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 So that that was the original thought, right? Well, obviously that didn't work out so good. As that dragged on, we're now paying rent on the space that we're going to do production in, not getting any return on the investment. And we have a mortgage on the other property that we bought. So we've got this cash outlay, no mm -hmm. cash inflow. So my wife said, look, why don't we get off underneath that lease on the production space and try to find a tenant to, to take over our other space until this thing, pandemic, resolves itself? And I said, yeah. You're right. This is so. I mean, I, so I'm a risk manager. Is my profession. You know, <laughs> risk. Risk is uncertainty, and there was a lot of uncertainty. Therefore, a lot of risk. And I'm fairly risk averse. So I said, "Yeah, you're right." So we ended, you know, our first attempt by keep getting out of the lease. The guy was very cordial. He found another tenant, opened a little f private fitness spa thing in that space during the pandemic. I'm not sure how he did that, but he did. And then we we did find a tenant, a young lady. We wanted to open a little beauty salon. She wanted to branch out you know, from what she was doing and create her own little space. So we're getting a little bit of cash flow back right? for that. We decided since we didn't have that many pieces of equipment, but we could probably easily resell them, we did. So we got rid of the tanks and the pump. And so we're kind of just sitting there, you know, twiddling our thumbs, waiting for this pandemic to ever end, which obviously it, it lingered for Far, far past the three weeks. So it, it lingered so long that we decided we kind of lost momentum in our energy and enthusiasm to to do this business. Let's just be content and, and be home mead makers. 
Well, then one fateful evening, we're at our favorite local watering hole here in, in the little town of Harrisburg outside of Charlotte. And we're very good friends with the two young guys who are the owners. And they said, hey, the suite two doors down from us just opened up. And he goes, it's probably large enough. It's around 1,200 square feet, kind of big rectangular space. He goes, you could probably put both your tap room and your production in here. Now, at this point, you've sold all your equipment. Yeah. But again, it wasn't <laughs> that much. I mean, I mean, I only had like four tanks, you know, like 320 liter tanks. They don't talk about barrels in the wine world. I'm just imagining where you had that. So like at this point- yeah. You, you you started, you bought stuff, and you're like, okay, forget this, we're out. And then this guy said something, you're like, you know what? <laughs> yeah. And so that was in uh, March of 2021. So the pandemic was starting to kind of mm-hmm. go by the wayside, at least in North Carolina. You know, a lot all the restrictions were, were gone and businesses were back opening and you know with with you know masks and all that stuff to be safe. I said to him, well, you know, Carl, you know. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I said, I, I need to have some comfort about what we can expect revenue-wise because we are now out in the suburbs. We're, we're fairly rural mm. in this location versus that place in Noda, which would have been unbelievable foot traffic. Out where we're going to be, not so much. So he shows me his books and the revenue he was generating through his small brewery. And I was like, wow. I then went back to my little spreadsheets, right? And, and I said, well, what if I'm only taking a third of what he's getting, does that pay the bills? And the answer was yes. And we had all these plans for synergy that we're gonna have these suites had a you know front facing doors and they had a back facing patio that we were gonna share. We had all these grandiose plans oh, for synergy. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Between us and them. And these guys are super supportive. And so we met the lady who owned the bit the building and we signed the lease and she's very nice about it. Says, hey, I'll give you 90 days lease free while you do your upfit. Okay. So we go back to that same architect who we paid thousands of dollars before to do the plan in the Noda tap room and now paid thousands more to him to, to create a new plan for the combined production and tap room space. Beautiful concept they came up with. We're, we're kind of excited and we're ready to rock and roll. And knowing that, yeah, it's probably going to cost you know, 50, 60, 70,000 bucks to do the total upfit. And we're good with that. Fortunately, we, we did not require partners. That was our first rule was that we were not going to be partners with anybody. We heard too many hor- well, because we heard too many horror stories. In fact, that actually caused a local place that we were friends with the owners of to shut down because the one guy owned 51% of their business, mm. didn't want to take it in the direction that they did. And when he told me that horror story, I'm like, well, yeah, I'm not signing up for that. So we'll, we'll scale it down to something that we can afford without, again, breaking the bank and not be beholden to any partners. It's an interesting part. Like It's pretty much evenly split, and the people who believe you should have a partner are adamant that you should have a partner. I was always a non-partner guy. And from the beginning, my wife and I, she was my partner, and, and that was you know challenging enough. So like, why would I add <laughs> another person into that? So Yeah. I mean, I mean, clearly, especially in the brewery, world where you're talking about huge capital investment, you probably are reliant on partners to get the funding, right? Somebody's money. Yeah. Right. It's right. You're most likely going to be beholden to somebody or multiple people. And that's just the nature of that business. It's very capital intensive. That's not the way it is for a small scale metery plan that we had, because at the end of the day, we're looking at this as proof of concept. And that's, I mean, I've, I've been involved in project management for, you know, almost 40 years. And you certainly don't want to take that big step without knowing that 
you know, the small baby step was going to be accepted or not and be mm-hmm. successful, however you measure success, right? And that's the other reason why we chose to do it small scale that we could afford, but also determine, are we wasting our time here? If we are, let's, you know, cut bait and move on and call it good. Or boy, this actually has traction. Now let's put more investment into it, right? Blah, 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 to grow it. And at the same time, I, I realized through a, a, another friend of mine who was an entrepreneur, he, he gave me a great recommendation, great advice to read the book, E-Myth. I guess E stood for entrepreneur or entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. And in it, you find out very quickly that just because you're the doer, right? The, the concept person who makes the product, you can't be that person in a successful business long-term. You have to morph very quickly from the doer to the owner and the CEO. And I really didn't have a plan for that. Mm. Right? I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm the guy making the me, right? They, they want my product. You thought it'd be fun product. to make the me. That's why you wanted to do it. You didn't want to necessarily want to like balance the checkbook and manage the light bill. Well, so that part didn't bother me. So my, my, my wife has a business degree. So she was going to be the CFO. Mm-hmm. And she was also going to be the CEO because from a LLC perspective. And I, I was going to be the COO. We, we ought to be chief of something, right? Make ourselves you know, feel, <laughs> feel important. <laughs> but so we, we had that covered. You know, I actually bought a few books. There was one book out there about the financing, finance tracking of breweries. Mm-hmm. It's a really good book. It's a couple hundred pages long, actually. Gives you all those core details. But anyway, cutting it back to it, this whole proof of concept idea, was going to be our initial way of, of getting into this. So we're looking at that space, you know, two doors down from our, our good friends, and we hire the architect, got the plans for that. Then we hired a professional engineer to do some preliminary inspections. And that's when the second huge roadblock occurred. This building was an L-shaped building about a block long each direction. And initially, it was only two separate units. And then when it resold like 15 years ago, the, the company that bought it, they chopped it up into about 13 smaller suites. Well, the AC units on the roof, there was not a one-to-one correspondence between a unit and a suite. Hmm. So it turns out we, our unit shared an HVAC with another unit, which happened to be on the other side of that little brewery I was talking about. So that by itself wasn't a building code violation. The violation was it was a nail salon with all those noxious chemicals. So by code, those fumes have to be vented into the atmosphere. The way that the, the uh, ductwork was set up, it resurfed. And we noticed that smell, actually, when we went into our little suite. And the the, the engineer says, this is a code violation. You guys can't, you're never going to get a certificate of occupancy. Right? They give you a unique house flavor in your meat, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> which we were very concerned about. So we, we contact the woman who owns the building and she looks into getting it remediated. And the one option was to put a separate unit directly into our suite. Well, she found out that was going to be, I think, thirty to $33,000. And she was unwilling to make that investment because it was going to far exceed what she was charging us for the, the lease over the two-year period that we agreed to initially. So we decided to shake hands and cut bait again <laughs> and said, oh, we're done now. So this was two months after the initial excitement of the restart there. Again, I bought some equipment, not too much. What do you uh, do with it at the time? I, I, I resold it again. All right, good. Because these tanks are actually very marketable and, and you get 
you know, probably 80, 80 cents in a dollar. So it wasn't, you know, a fire sale kind of thing. It was actually, I didn't have as much time to acquire as I did the first time. So I didn't have as much to, to liquidate. So that was yeah. in May of 2021. So I, I have a feeling we're going to find another one, but let's, uh, let me take a quick break. And I want to okay. see, my prediction is there's going to be a third place, but uh, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back right now. Okay. All right. Well, welcome back. So we, we've, we've opened once, we've opened twice. We don't know what's about to happen next, but I actually had a couple of questions about the beginning part, especially, but one of them was you, you had decided like right out of the gates to purchase the property for the tasting room, but then to have an offsite production facility, which is unique for beer. It's definitely been done, but it's not something you see all the time. I'm just curious how you made that, how and why you made that choice for your business. Sure. It, it was strictly based upon the financials. So again, my wife being in the real estate industry, she knew that it was paramount that we found an optimal location for the tap room because that mm -hmm. was the revenue generator, right? To have your production on site would have been a nice to have. But in that location, I was just you know, telling you about in Charlotte, it's extremely expensive. And there weren't commercial spaces big enough, actually, because it's like restaurants and things like that in this mm -hmm. few block stretch. So first of all, there wasn't an adequate building that would allow us the size to have both of those aspects of the business house under one roof so, so i thought about doing this also at one point that there was i was having an issue with you know, the, the rent being one of the most expensive things that we paid for especially in my model and i was having a hard time finding another facility that was going to make the net effect cheaper so one of the things i'm curious about how far away was the production facility roughly it was uh, uh, five miles it was, it was so easy for, to get to so being just five miles away you were in that dense of a spot that the rent was so much dramatically cheaper that it made the overall project it would have been cheaper than trying to purchase a facility in Noda. Through transact, right? Because again, there weren't the kind of structures that were in that Noda district. It's more of an entertainment district. It's not industrial, mm -hmm. right? So we needed an industrial space for the production. So that again, all under one roof capability did not exist in that Noda district. Mm -hmm. So what would have been ideal would have been a, a found. You know, there are a few different bars in that area. Would have been really nice is if one of those had come free, because then it would have been plug and play. They were already upfitted mm. as a bar, right? But we were starting from scratch. We were going to have to put in the taps and the floor drains and all the things to make a tap room. And that's where the expense of the upfit was going to occur. So we certainly would have preferred to have found a plug and play. But this area is maybe only three blocks long. And it's not inundated with, you know, bar, bar, bar. So mm -hmm. the timing, just if we, you know, we've, we'd waited and waited, we might have said, okay, we're only going to open the business when one of those establishments goes on the market for sale. But we didn't wait to do that. We wanted, figuring we'd start small, but we could just put the upfitting into expense into that location because literally it's in a neighborhood that's, you know, going through a, a great renaissance, a lot of foot traffic. That was the key. We were going to get people walking by, hopefully saying, geez, what's mead, right? <laughs> Getting that that crowd in and then teach them. I, I love to teach and just to get people excited about the product, teach them about honey. Because that was the other part of our business was to really educate people about the plight of the honeybee in, in the United States in particular and how vital that creature is to human food chains, which I still don't know all of it, but I was... My eyes were open tremendously as I learned 
I actually had a relationship with a local beekeeper. He was going to source, we we're going to source all of our honey from him locally because that was another part of our model was to get people all excited. Let's face it, this the craft thing is kind of a hippie kind of a vibe in general. And people are, are very conscientious about the environment as, as, we, as we should. So we were going to source our honey locally. We were going to get as much of our fruit from local farms throughout North Carolina, right? We were really trying to be holistic and local and have that, you know, basically farm to table concept to say, well, yeah, that this mead, the honey came from Cabarrus County, right? The great or the uh, blueberries came from Lenore an hour away, you know, blah, blah, blah. So we, mm-hmm. we're working with our branding guy to come up with the story. So he took, he did a great job of really thinking about how we would want to package this to make it something that consumers would be interested in and not just a product. Because what I learned very quickly is if you go, say you and your wife go to a new restaurant, when you walk out the door, you've made one decision primarily. And what, what decision was that? Well, the night coming back? Bingo. And it wasn't just about the food, I would bet. Yeah, it's, it's almost about, always an ambiance picture. and It's know, the election. experience. It's yeah. the experience. So again, I learned through lots of research and talking to other entrepreneurs that you can have the best product, but if it's not bundled in the right experience, you're not going to get the return business. And again, so to me, that was an epiphany about how we need to view running a business. You want that consumer to walk out of there with the wow. So the story had to be meaningful. And that's the story about all the local products you know, for our raw materials. Mm-hmm. That was going to be the basis of our story to get people hooked to say, well, geez, I'm supporting local, right? This is a great vibe. It's We're going to have local beekeepers coming in doing honey tastings on Tuesday nights, right? Kind of thing to educate people about honey in general. I mean, if you ask your average listener, they probably have no concept of the varieties of honey that are out there. I can give you one honey right now to taste. You'll swear it is apple, cinnamon, apple jacks. Okay. Okay. I can give you another one from your area down at Mesquite honey. Mm -hmm. It's got a tobacco kind of a burnt flavor to it leathery flavor. They're both honeys. Orange blossom honey has a citrus note to it. There's a flower up in the Pacific Northwest called meadow foam that you'd swear you're eating marshmallows. Really? And so that was, gonna be, again, part of our story was to teach people about the craft of honey. Yeah, are called, right. So they're called monoflorals. Wildflower honey is the generic name when the beekeeper can't determine what flowers were used for pollination. It's just a mix. Random shit. Yeah, Yeah, but exactly. That's why it's called wildflower because you don't know. It's mostly clover. But these other guys will do specific. They'll actually make sure they take their hives to a location where all around it is only whatever. And you get these things called monoflorals. Anyway, so that was the story. So we knew we had to build the story on top of the product to create an experience to get people excited about it. So again, we thought we had really thought this out very well. And people we'd run this by, they're like, yeah, man, that makes a lot of sense, blah, blah, blah. I said, when we you know, shut down the second time, by this time, my wife said, you know, we are out. And uh, I said- I her for sticking in there as long as she did. That's uh, that was Well, yeah. Well, because she actually did a lot of painting and kind of fixing up like the production space. And then that second space, we had knocked down some walls and we were getting all prepped. And then we found out about uh, building code violations. So anyway, fast forward two, two months later, and our branding guy- he also does the branding for a local brewery. And through him, we had become friends with one of the owners. And they've been around you know, five or six years here in this area. So the two of them were just talking randomly in July of 2021. And the guy at the brewery said, hey, whatever became of their meadery plan? 
And our friend Justin said, ah, here's a long story. I'll give you the cliff notes. They're out. Well, it turns out this guy was getting ready to expand he had a fairly large production facility in a, in a mill and then the other building at the mill was a small brewery that was moving to a larger space themselves in that same complex. So this guy took over that guy's space to use it for private events. Hmm. Well, in that space was a small 600 foot production area that the, the previous brewery was using. Well, the big brewery had no use for that space. So the owner of that brewery texts me and says, hey, I heard you guys you know, kind of gave up you know, sorry to hear that. Let's meet over a beer and talk about another way of doing this for you guys. <laughs> so my wife so, and I were thinking. So you thought you were out and uh, it sucked you back in. Yeah, I guess like in baseball, you know, two strikes, you're not out. Uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. If you have to go, you have to go down swinging a third time sort of a, a thing. But uh, that was so, me opening my uh, bottle of bourbon because if you're going to talk about a third strike, I'm going to need a little more booze. Go for it. Yeah. Let's hear about it. Yeah. So anyway, things started out great. I said, you know, we were friendly with this guy. We'd known him you know, since he opened and uh, always seemed like a great guy. So he's really saying, hey, I want to help you guys get this going. It turns out we would not have a, a tap room under this business model. We were only going to be using that brewing space and we'd have to do distro. And was he yeah, going to sell the meat in his tap room? He was. So again, because hmm. of licensing, so it turns out this is crazy. Separate things that whoever gets into trying to start an operation, you know, either beer or, or mead, wine, whatever, you better find out what all the legalities are because you've got three levels of government to deal with, right? You got the local people, you got your state licensing, and then you got the feds. And we did it backwards. The feds is actually the easiest. And we did that one first. And we learned prices do that one last and kind of work from local up, right? That's a lesson Depends. learned. That. Depends when you do it. I think like in 17, they were the ones holding everybody back. And so I remember one brewery had their TABC license six months before the TTB license ever came in. They were just sitting there with all the local stuff done, but they couldn't get their license. Yeah, right. So it, it certainly can, can be case by case specific. And in this case, it turns out not from a licensing perspective, but but the legalities. And the legality is in the wine world, I we could not be a, um, a gypsy brewer, I guess. Mm. We, we, we couldn't be a contract. That's not allowed in North Carolina for, for the wine industry. Even so that, wine on wine? Or were you trying to do wine on beer and that was the problem? No, the, this is wine on wine. The, the <laughs> beer facility was a separate building, right? So the only thing that was going to come out of this space was going to be mead. And then he, he actually wanted to add cider which is fine because that's the same license. So again, long story short, then we had to incorporate under him getting a separate TTB license for, for the wine license, which gave him mead and cider. So we set up an agreement. I had a contract written up that I spent $1,500 with a lawyer to drop a contract to explain this agreement we, the two of us were going to have with respect to the financials, right? Mm-hmm. He wasn't going to incur any expense for me to produce our product, right? That's on us. And we would self-distribute, but then the proceeds would have to go through his business legally. But hmm. that'd just be a that'd just be a pass-through. You know, so whatever, you know, XYZ cider company, right? That's who the people would have to pay the bills to, but that came to us. And then we had an agreement where any of our product that he sold through his tap room, we wanted, you know, like a 50-50 split. So we we're kind of giving him that product and getting half of the the benefit of it. And then he threw on that he wanted us to make cider form. So I had to go back to the lawyer to add an amendment because I wasn't going to do that for free. And I I wanted some return 
on the sales of that. So we had that agreement in place, but he never signed the agreement. So we're, we're waiting for the overall you know, TTB to come through. And so this was from September. And finally, at uh, around Thanksgiving, we get the word back that the TTB license is in place. The thing's already been licensed locally, right, as a brewery. So that part was a checkbox. And then the fire marshal came in. And I think there was something, a little bit of work they had to do. But we're really ready to rock and roll at this point. And a friend of mine, who's also a cider maker in Charlotte, said, well, if you guys are going to make your own cider, you better see what the opportunity is to get juice because we had a horrible apple crop nationwide. He goes, I don't think you're going to find a supplier. If you're not already a client, he goes, I don't think you're going to get the juice. So the, the, the relationship kind of morphed from initially us believing that we were really there to start a meadery with our friend's help because he wasn't charging us rent or anything for the space. And, and we thought you know, for him, it was probably going to be kind of good, good press kind of a thing to him then saying, well, I really want cider because he was buying commercial cider from other places because sure. obviously every brewer, right? Yeah. Walk in and everyone offers some cider, right? Something so gluten-free. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Or for, you know, people who aren't beer drinkers, but are with you know friends or family who are. So I understood his view of doing this. He's trying to cut out the middleman and make all the money for himself. Okay. I'm, I'm good with that. I'm a capitalist. Then he finds out that he can't get the juice as this other cider maker predicted. So this is literally nationwide. No one could buy apple juice. Nationally, the crops were bad, the yield. And clearly, Hmm. different parts of the country would have been different. But in general, it was a very bad year. Hmm. And so, I mean, clearly, if we, you know, what if there was a reasonable yield in New Hampshire or someplace? The cost to ship that down here would have been enormous, right? Mm-hmm. So these guys obviously are looking more locally to, to source. And in the Carolinas, it was a bad, bad season. So he realizes that he's not going to get the cider revenue that he was anticipating. Suddenly, he wanted to charge us rent to use the space. He wasn't going to be cool and let you use it for free? <laughs> yeah, initially, right? So yeah. Everything was free. It was, just, it, was, it was Initially, it was all about helping us get started. And then slowly over time, the business model changed. So sort of like a death by a thousand pinpricks, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it just kind of, it's like, uh, I stepped back and said, well, no, this isn't what we originally were, were interested in doing. My wife and I kind of really sat there and, and debated for a while and what we were going to do. And we said, well, maybe again, we're, we're trying to get this thing through the third time, right? Get this proof of concept. If we can at least get this up and running, we don't have the expense of upfitting a tap room, we can at least see if there's a market for this. You know, give it three months, whatever, six months. And if there is, then we branch out and go do our own thing. Well, coincidentally, <laughs> I was in the process of getting a new job <laughs> at, at a different bank in, in Charlotte. And my wife and I, uh, this was in February now, and we're, again, getting ready to mull over and, and, and sign the lease to, to move forward with the new you know, instance of our business. And we're sitting at our one of our favorite breweries. It was a nice day in the winter, sitting outside in their on their outdoor patio. And she looks at me. She goes, "Do you really want to do this with your new job?" And because it turned out I just started this new job about three weeks before, and the scope of that job changed. It went from something that was going to be kind of very narrow focused. That when my boss kind of learned the experiences I had that I was bringing to the team, he wanted me to go hire seven people. Create a team. That's a different right. 
Right. It really expand the, the scope of what we're doing. And I'm thinking, boy, that's going to be hard to manage that full time and try to do the side gig because now the side gig was going to be all on us to go find accounts to do the distro with. Oh, so we, weren't yeah. gonna, we, we, we were not going to have a tap room. So was it like 70% of revenues typically are coming through the tap room? Well, Man, that, revenue, that right. So that revenue stream was gone. It was only going to be us going around, you know, knocking door to door to various establishments to see if they'll buy six of our mead, right? And then so the cleaning more, tap lines and the whole, there's the whole different, the, the sales would have been the easy part, put it that way. Right, right, you're right. Because making sure that they're treating the product the way it needs to be treated to make it as palatable, you know, as good as it can be. So yeah, we didn't have the time or the energy by this point to to sign up to do that. So literally at that moment, we decided three strikes were out and I texted you know, our potential business partner and said, yeah, sorry, I, I took a new job. It's way more intensive than I thought. And we're not going to, we've chosen not to move forward. And so my wife made me pinky swear that that was the absolute last time that the mentioning of opening a meadery would come out of my mouth. And I've held pinky true swear. to my word. <clears throat> yep. Yeah. We made this agreement and I have never mentioned since then the, uh, the option or possibility of, hey, honey, what do you think we... So I, I, I certainly know better. I've been married 37 years. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> and this was, was it earlier this year? Yeah, it would have, it was, it was in, uh, yeah, it was beginning, it was in the beginning of March. Man, because I remember, yeah. I think I reached out to you before that originally, and then followed back up. And what, in some ways, I was hoping that you did open or were going to open. And then uh, when you didn't, I'm like, well, actually, that's a fun story too. Let's tell that one. So yeah, I mean, there, there's lots of cautionary tales, obviously, right? I think a yeah. lot of people can take away. Well, so that's the big reason I wanted to talk to you. And I think let's uh, let's take a quick break. And in the last segment, let's get into all of those cautionary tales. And I want you to give some advice to the people who are listening on uh, okay. what we can avoid. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Do you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer off your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to AccuBrew.io, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. All right, welcome back. I appreciate you sticking with us. Obviously, this is the uh, that was the third of four segments. This is the one where I want to get into the really the big details. So, your wife said, "Don't do it again." Um, you listened to her, but what was her last straw? I'm curious. And, and keep in mind, I was a partnership with my wife. Um, she had like four of them, and in her defense, I don't think I listened to all of them to to my detriment. Um, so I'm. I should have learned from you early on in many cases, but what uh, what was her last straw? What 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 was the hey? Don't ever mention it to me again because of X. Like what you know? What was the thing? So in each of the three places where we tried to open, the, you know, the production side, my wife spent 40, 50 hours at each location cleaning it up, 
painting. She's owned her own faux finished painting business at one time. So she enjoys, you know, rolling paint and making mm-hmm. things look nice. So the third time at the in the mill, that building was about 100 years old. And literally there was like this black grime caked into the brick wall of the of the room, right? So she got the the acids and things and got it the caustics to get all that stuff cleaned out, removed, disposed of, then goes back in there on her ladders, right? These 20 foot ceilings, right? She's up there painting all that space for the third time. Again, probably spending 40, 50 hours of, of sweat equity. And she gets frustrated a little more easily than I do. And <laughs> having done that three times, to her that was three times too many. And she was never going to do that again because none of the three times prior led to anything material or beneficial to our family. So I, I get it. I, I wasn't the one there doing that work because I was working you know, my day job, if you will. So you know, I can't quite relate to all the physical activities that you know, she went through. Again, roll 20-foot ceilings and you know, get things cleaned up and really nice to have it not turn into anything. So for her, that was the breaking point. Plus, you know, she's the one who was writing the checks and saw that, you know, we had all this cash outflow towards different expenses that we had no nothing on the positive side of the ledger. So the combination of the outflow of cash and the wasted time and effort on her part just manifested itself to a boiling point that she said no, no moss. So she <laughs> she didn't look at it the way I would <laughs> from a business perspective. And the opportunity, hers was very tactical, short-term, like, I don't want to go through this pain again to have it fail yet again. So she was not willing to entertain that ever again. And so that's where we, yeah. we, land, we landed. And I, I, I appreciate that. I don't, you know, certainly, there's a, the, old, the old adage, happy wife, happy life. And I certainly didn't want to, because we weren't looking at this project as something that we were going to retire and make a, a gazillion dollars off of, right? It was more, yeah. it was a pat, it was, it was mostly a passion and to afford me something to do in retirement that was enjoyable, uh, educational, and, you know, made a little money on the side. So Keep you off clearly, the pole. Ex- exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I'm sure a lot of your listeners, that's not what they're into it for. They would say, well, that's a waste of my time if I'm not going to make money. So yeah, everyone's got their different reasons for you know trying to start up something like this. Mine wasn't, you know, as a mid thirties person who, you know, maybe, you know, my my spouse had enough income and benefits that I could take a risk. That wasn't the stage of my life I was in. And so I am fortunate that I didn't put in, you know, and lose my shirt, if you will, financially. Uh, whereas I'm sure others unfortunately have gone in too deep and things didn't work out and in the financial part of it would cause you know a lot of strain not only to a person's pocketbook but potentially you know to family relationships and you know, business partner relationships and, and things. So I I feel at the, at the end of the day we dodged a bullet that I look at it of how bad things could have been and this wasn't that. So I don't really have a lot of animus and or, or anger about the experience. I think my wife's still a little bit more angry than I am. But at the end of the day, you know. No one was hurt during the filming of this uh, attempt yeah. at, uh, at opening a business. So, well, so it sounds like she's still able to go go to breweries. And I, I talked to you last week, and you guys are going to a brewery. For oh, me, yeah. I, I I don't know if if yeah, I think I mentioned this in previous episodes, but it took me. So we're recording now in October. I sold 
essentially the assets of the brewery and the, the intellectual property that got thrown in the trash. I sold all of that in September of last year. And so uh, it literally took me until I think it was like May or June until I had a beer that I knew wasn't good, that it didn't get pissed off, that how are these assholes in business and I'm not and blah, blah, blah. I get, there was a long period of anger and angst about, you know, for me, it was more failure and, and definitely a lot of struggle that had come to an end. But did, did you guys have any of that? Like you still make mead, right? Yeah. I mean, again, I'm sure we are probably the most unique of the folks you've interviewed uh, throughout your podcast history. And I, I, again, we're lucky that we don't have this huge life impact that we're trying to get past, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, we can say we're upset, we wasted time and money, but you really sometimes have to step back and say, well, how? what was the true cost? Is it permanent or not? And the answer is, it's not permanent. You know, so it wasn't life or death, right? And so again, I know ours is going to be very unique and it never, I mean, we actually celebrated I mean, we, we went to a bottle share with friends the next day to, to announce we're out of this. And meanwhile, we're sharing our meads and our friends are more upset than I am. Like, <laughs> Come on, we're, we're really looking forward. I mean, so we had about 550 followers on Instagram, right? We had really started to build some momentum and things. Mead is a very much a niche product. And we had made lots of good contacts. In fact, we'd spent a day with, with a meadery uh, owner up in Richmond when we first got the concept to actually shadow him for a day. So we oh, paid really? him money. Yeah. We paid him money to walk us through what a day in the life of a mead maker was. So again, we did a lot of, you know, of the homework that you know, I think probably a lot of people don't do, but again, just because of my age and knowing people in the industry, you know, we were given pointers about, Hey, you better make sure you do these things, these things, and don't overlook these other things that, that can be blind spots that could derail your, your plans, right? So I don't think we had any business missteps. We didn't have any misanticipation of the scope of the of the profit or you know the livelihood we would gain from it. We really went into it with eyes wide open and not simply, oh boy, I make a good product, therefore I'm gonna have a successful business. So that that to me is the most relevant piece of advice. Any business, I don't care whether it's making me or whatever, just because you're good at making it doesn't make you a good business owner to market and distribute the product. Because if you like IPAs, and let's pretend that no one liked IPAs, <laughs> if you only made IPAs, you're not going to make any money, right? So you yeah. have to go f- You have to go from what do you like to what do the consumers like? And some people have an ego problem. It would be hard to give that up, right? Well, you better leave your ego at the door if you're going to start a business, especially when it's so interactive and so communal especially with social media, right? If you if you got on untapped and started reading all the negative things that people may say, because my wife said to me, if we get this thing going, you are not allowed to go on untapped and read because she knows I would be reactive to that stuff. Like what are you horrible. Yeah, don't, right. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you really have to look at this thing from so many different dimensions and ask yourself the question, do I really want to do this? And I'm sure if someone's doing it as their full time, time endeavor, it is not going to be a 40-hour work week. You, hmm. you experienced it. I'm sure you could tell horror stories of you know 20-hour days and 80-hour weeks. And people who go into this need that feedback. They need to interview and speak to others, right? And get their advice. Simple question to that other person you might be talking to is, if you had to do this again, would you do it? And if they pause and you think you think this is you know some successful brewery, right? That's your favorite place to hang out. 
But that owner pauses and is kind of thinking about it before, before you know, saying, oh, yeah, I would do it. But they're not enthusiastically saying, oh, yeah, man, it's way worth it. You better step back and start asking questions. Well, why, why, why the hesitation? Because everything in life is a cost-benefit trade-off, right? When you choose to walk across the street, even though the light's green, you better not disbelieve because it's green that you're not going to get run over, right? Yeah, there's always a, a risk. Right. There's, everything is a cost and a benefit. Everything, every decision you make. And that's what I do for a living. And that's why I'm so hyper-focused on that. Simply asking the question, basically, is the juice worth the squeeze, right? Is the benefit worth the cost? And for us, I kept coming back to the answer of yes, because my expectations were not Mount Everest. It was- Yeah, you had pretty low, like, like barrier to entry and stuff like that too. So yeah, I make- situation a little different in that regard, but I can see, I would be interested to see a year later if it didn't double and triple your investment just by necessity of like, oh, now this pump isn't big enough to run what we need, or we're not getting um, you know, sure. the settlement here. So the glycol filler is going to have to be in place where we didn't think we needed one or whatever it was, but yeah. Yep. Yeah. So luckily a lot of the equipment I got, you know, I got a brand new glycol chiller, the, the guys at the uh, the place that we we're going to try to move into, you know, two, two doors down, they, they bought I actually bought a, a big, well, for me, it was a big three-barrel um, unit tank. And I, I, I gave him like a 25% discount. This stuff is brand new, glycol chiller. So, again, I, we didn't lose our shirt, and our friends are using it. You know, we're big dog lovers. In fact, obviously, shepherds, meter, mm-hmm. the name came from, we, we love German shepherds. We foster them. We we have two of them. You know, we're huge Sherman Shepherd fans. So we named all of our tanks and we named them after all of our dogs we've had over the last 30 some years. And our biggest tank was named Gretchen, who was our first shepherd. And she was a wonderful dog. And she and I used to actually volunteer at the children's hospital as a visitation team. And so our friends, the guys who own that place, bought that tank for me and they've kept that name on the tank. So whenever we walk into their space, the production is such a small space that the production area is right there in full mm-hmm. view. And we see our tank you know, with Gretchen on it. Uh, and there's, that's kind of a, a fun little sentimental thing anyway, but uh, nice. it, yeah, it, some memories there. So that's good. Yeah. yeah. Again, I mean, there are just a slew of cautionary tales that anyone who tries to open a business and fails could share. I'm sure over history of your show you've you've gotten you know lots of good <laughs> feedback from folks and you know, often it's going to be you better expect the expenditure to be probably 2x what you thought it was going to be and it's going to take twice as long to get it open as you thought it was going to be right there's all these things that you, this enthusiasm you better have the gumption to fight through the valleys because it's easy to get derailed and get down in the dumps about the progress and you either have to, again, fish or cut bait at some point. And some people do it earlier on. Some people obviously get into it very deeply. It's 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 so much more complicated, especially... So in our case, going from the home brewer side, I, I would never do that in the in the beer world. I mean, that, that to me would have been an idiotic decision, primarily because there's so Why? many... Well, because you have so much opportunity to have actually worked in an industry, right? Be a brewer someplace first. That's what you needed to do, in my opinion, and not go from, you know, five gallon six dole batches at home to a ten barrel system. The actual process of industrial commercial beer making certainly is significantly different than doing it in a little corny keg, you know, at home. Mm-hmm. Right? You have to know how to use pumps, 
right? You, there's so much, in, it's, a, it's a mechanical engineering kind of process, right? And recipes don't scale, and all those things. There's just, it's, the it's, steps it's, aren't it's a, obvious too. Like the, what you learn at home brewing doesn't directly relate to, sure, you pump over, but there's a different volume at all of it. It, sure. it, it doesn't translate. And, and I, and I, I'm saying I'm one of the guys that made the mistake of thinking that it did. So I can tell you from experience that it's not. Right. So if I was a young person and I wanted, my vision was open a brewery, I'd go work as a professional in a professional brewery. And I started out as a seller man and worked my way up to actually learn the process at the industrial commercial level. It seems obvious, right? Well, it does if you step back and think about it, but <laughs> when you got this enthusiasm, hey, gee whiz, honey, I got four blue ribbons in the last four competitions we entered. I make great beer. We can go make a million bucks, right? Yeah. So the meat, the meat thing is a little bit different because I wasn't doing it at an industrial scale where I needed to. I mean, I had to have, I mean, I got a real pump and everything. And so I spent a lot of time talking to folks about that side and it was more scalable. But again, I was only going from, you know, say five gallon batches to hundred gallon. Mm-hmm. Right? So I was, I was like three barrels. So it wasn't that big of a leap for me to handle that component of it. Right. But I could not imagine being a production facility where, you know, every three weeks you get to have schedules, right. And if you're going to run an efficient brewery, you better have it all, your month better be planned out because every day you take up in a tank, you're taking up time to get the product to the consumer. Right. So am I going to do a triple IPA? It's going to take up this tank for three weeks. Or am I going to crank out three Pilsners? Right. There's all yeah. those Again, the margins are different benefit. on everything. So exactly right. It's all cost benefit. You better know the cost. That's the other cautionary tale, right? You better know what your ingredient costs are and all of your overhead costs, right? So you got fixed costs and you got recurring costs, and you better be able to figure that out in some spreadsheet. If you can't figure out your margin, you better not even think about opening up any kind of a business. Period. Whether you're going to build houses or sell <laughs> mead, if you don't know your margins. You're going in blind. If you go in blind, you're you're only going to succeed if you're lucky. I mean, a lot of people that go into it because they they see that somebody else is profitable at nine dollars a six pack on the shelf, and then it turns out that you have to hit a level of scale that you're not going to hit for the first nine and a half years. And then it also turns out that that brewery has never actually turned a profit, and they've been consistently using investor money and/or refinancing or whatever. Nine dollars a six pack is actually a losing number. But you wouldn't know that until you had worked at a brewery and, and kind of been part of it. So Right. I mean, yeah, if you want to be the owner of a brewery, you better know every aspect of every job in the brewery, right? You better understand the financials. You better understand kegging. How do you clean your kegs, right? How do you fill kegs? All those nuances that you don't have to worry about when you're you know, spending 60 bucks for some sack of grain and some yeast and you do a five-gallon batch in your house. Okay, big whoop. That's what uh, the very first interview I did with Chris, like his lesson to everybody was like, if you really want to open a brewery, go buy the baddest ass homebrew system you can find, like spend 20K on it and then brew for years and give it to everybody you know. And I swear you will not lose as as much money as I did. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. You'll have way more fun. Like everyone's your friend. Right. I mean, that's another thing. Once you go into something, go from making, having something be a hobby and a passion to being a business, you better expect the enjoyment to go down the, down the tubes. That's, again, that's reality. Yeah. I, I wish it wasn't that way, but you're, you're no longer, you can't be the brewer and be the owner. 
of a large scale business that's going to actually make you enough money to sustain a lifestyle that you think you are entitled to. Too many moving parts, yeah. Right, putting in 80, 80 hours a week, right? Unless you've found the magic way of cloning yourself into four or five human beings, you can't do it, right? So again, this e-myth talks exactly about that. If you're the brewer, you better get somebody on board very quickly that is going to be your new brewer. And you teach that person to do it and have some agreement, hopefully, that they'll stick around. And now your job is to grow the business. You, you go from being you know, a tactician to being the strategist, right? You must morph mm-hmm. from short-term to long-term, no matter what the business is. And if you don't have that vision, don't do this. And that was part of the problem for me is that uh, in my career, I didn't want that. So when I first opened first 1,500 breweries around the country, I could legitimately have this small sort of like part-time thing and have my investments sort of make money. Then the number of breweries in America went up 7X. And I was like, well, now it doesn't work. Uh, and I was too late. I was already into it. And I kept putting money in. And I don't I don't see any reason to think that the number of breweries, wineries, distilleries, all of those are, are going to go down anytime in the next three to four years. There, there may be some massive bubble, but I don't see it yet. Yeah, I mean... What's going to happen is it's going to be a self-select thing, right? Again, either you don't have a product that is so good that that overshadows the experience, however you define experience, whether it's a place that's hard to get to, right? If it's not worth mm-hmm. your effort to go to a place, you ain't going as a consumer. There's too right? many choices now. Yeah, why would you? Exactly, right? And that's what's called the dilemma of choice for consumers. So you better have a compelling story or something that makes you stand out from your competitors to attract consumers, repeat consumers, right? My wife is a very social person. She's very outward. So that part of, you know, having the banter with the consumers and all that would have been very easy for her. Mine would have been more, again, trying to teach people about mead and honey, right? And that's where my enjoyment is being, you know, more professorial, if you will. Um, And I'd like to find people who get as excited about the process and, and the you know things you can do with it and and help people if they want to you know, start to brew themselves and I've done that for a few folks so that's my you know part of the experience that I would bring to the table is the enthusiasm of the technical and all that stuff well if you're this consumer who wants to come in for a beer or a mead you may not want to hear that crap from the yeah. owner and that person may say well this guy just don't just talk yeah his stuff was good but yeah it's kind of a bland experience yeah you know, one and done right off the bucket list kind of thing. So you have to know your audience, obviously, to, to have a compelling enough story that differentiates you from the competitors to get them to come repeatedly and bring more people, obviously, and then grow your, your market share, right? If you don't have a vision to do that, you're just wasting time. I don't care if you make the best triple IPA, the best goes the best, whatever. You could have a gazillion gold medals. It's meaningless. If you can't translate that into an experience that puts asses in your establishment, right? And which is tough today too. And that's the thing that we deal with over and over is that even if all the pieces work, some of the hype breweries, they don't make any sense. Like you go some of the ones that are like well-known and, and you mentioned Burial. They're definitely one that is Answer Brew Pub, another one over there. But there's a bunch of breweries that are, they have that hype. And I've been to some on the West Coast, particularly some in Texas, and then when you and you go as somebody with a palate as a professional and you're just like, this is disappointing as hell. Like not, it's nothing about this is special. And then in some cases, the one I went to in Portland, it was bad. Like every beer I had was worse than their beer before, but it didn't matter. They were 
selling everything they could make um, out the door the day they made it. It was crazy. Yeah. And the question is, is that sustainable, right? Or once you kind of get over that bubble of hype, do people kind of just fall off? And that's the other thing from um, being a data scientist is, is part of what I do. You've got to collect all this data and you got to see where you should be investing, right? What products are selling and what's What's the frequency, right, of, of making sure you've got that product out there? And there's so much feedback that you're getting from the consumer that you have to leverage. Part of what I do is optimization, right? So mathematics. And so you better have a vision to how are you going to optimize your profit? At the end of the day, the profit equation is the most simple equation on the planet. Revenue minus expense always has been, always will be that equation. The only way you can increase P is you either increase R or reduce E. It's that's it. You got to decide a, which of those. Two. That's a very unpopular statement in the crappier industry. So. <laughs> no, again, it's but but again, it's reality. If I if I take an egg and I hold it two feet off the ground and I drop it, it's going to smash into the ground. That's reality, whether we like it or not. Right. Yeah. Same thing here. I, I'm I'm about data and truth, and you better have a plan to control one of those two things. It's almost impossible to optimize both. Right. Drive your expenses down to the bare minimum and increase your revenues. Those are conflicting things. So you got to find the trade-off that optimizes, maximizes your profit. So it takes so much thinking and devising and planning and not making the beer or the mead. You need to pay yeah. somebody 40 grand a year to do that if you're going to do it at scale, right? You've got to be the person thinking about, how am I going to, you know, my, my utility costs, what if I crank down the temperature two degrees in the in the wintertime? What's that do to my utility costs? Well, geez, I'm, I'm going to see in our bucks a year. Well, maybe I should do that, right? That's a legitimate savings, yeah. Right. So you have to know your expenses and in which of those are controllable and which aren't, right? It requires so much analysis that people don't want to do. And if you don't want to do the analysis, don't start the business because either you have to do the analysis or you got to pay somebody to do it. At the end of the day, the analysis needs to be done by somebody. If you don't know what your expenses are, and what your revenues are, you're flying completely blind, right? So either you do it or you pay for the expertise, but that expertise in the business has to exist. Yeah, somebody's got to. Right. And that's a big problem with like ultimately why I ended up writing the book that I did and then that led to the podcast is that so many of the conversations I had with people in the industry, you know, successful, non-successful, whatever, they just refused to have that conversation. It was always a barrelage question. It was always a um, you know, how many followers on social media, but it was, it was never a, here's how much profit we've made last quarter. We're doing well. No one wants to talk about profit. And that to me was a big problem and why I decided that, that that story needed to be told. And obviously I'm fighting against the status quo. And I've been told many times by many people in the industry that the story nobody wants to hear quote unquote, which I think is ridiculous, but also accurate. It's true. They're not, they're not lying. No one wants to hear it. They just want to keep making beer. So. Right. I don't want to hear that I'm going to die, <laughs> but I'm going to die. And so, so to everybody, right? So again, just because you don't want to hear the truth doesn't mean the truth doesn't exist. All you got to do is look at the simple fact. These are small businesses. Look across the United States. What's the rule? Every year of every five new businesses that open within the first year, four of them, will be out of business. So sort of in the best case, your odds are only one in five. That's only 20%. That's not a good odds. I wouldn't mm -hmm. want to put a gun in my head with a 20% chance I'm not going to blow my head off, right? So it's all about the reality of the cash flow. And if you don't have a way of measuring it, you might as well just sit there and drink a six pack and 
fantasize about it, but never do it because you're going to fail. That's the reality. You're going to take your family down with you. No, no, I agree. Right, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you've lived it, and I'm sure a lot of the guys you've talked to have. I mean, there can be some very permanent consequences to this pie-in-the-sky belief. Either, A, you don't know all that you need to, to know. That's one problem. The more egregious problem, in my opinion, is you know what needs to be done, but you choose consciously not to do it because it's either unpleasant or you don't want to do it for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay, hey, I got cancer, but if I don't get it diagnosed, then I don't have cancer. Huh, really? Is that how it works? I don't think so. I live in Texas. Do you actually see that with COVID tests all the time now? People just aren't getting tested so that they don't have COVID. That's a, that's a yeah. legitimate thing. Hey, if I put my hand in front of my face, I can't see you. That means you can't see me, right? I mean, <laughs> I don't this exist. Is, right, it's right. It's, it's, it's nonsense, right? You have to no. choose to understand if you, you have to know what deficiencies you have going into to be a business person, right? If you've never run a business before, you better find out what it takes to run any business, first of all, and then get industry specific about your knowledge. We, we, we call it a gap assessment, right? And project management. <laughs> what is that gap? Is it a bridge that can be built or not? Can you get or pay for those gaps that exist? And if you can't, you, you, you scuttle the project. Right. It's as simple as that. People, again, because it's unpleasant and the chances are you're not going to succeed. People avoid wanting to hear that or know that. And that's their bad. Yeah. Well, it usually ends up at their peril for sure. Right. Again. Yeah. If you start homebrewing and you're going to competitions and you ain't doing shit, you know, getting accolades, then you probably shouldn't be the brewer of a brewery. Well, but what if you're a millionaire? You may now have the money to be the owner of the business and hire the best brewer and things and have a very successful business. But you yourself are a crappy brewer. Mm-hmm. That's a very that's a very likely you know, scenario. But too many times it's the guy or person who thinks, oh, boy, I make this great product. Ergo, I will have a successful business. And that is such a small part of the actual equation and puzzle to running a successful business. People have no appreciation for that. Until you start to do the due diligence and in your eyes, if they don't get opened up, then you really shouldn't. If you still think at the end of the day, if I make a good product, that's all I need to do. You really should step back and say, no, I am not going to move forward with this project. That is some great advice. And uh, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Quick question. You guys never distributed. There's no way someone could actually pick up one of your bottles or try your meat, right? I mean, if someone want to try it, I mean, if they paid for a label, you know, I could send a bottle of stuff that we have, but you know, certainly no, no monetary transaction. That's that's not allowed. And so, uh, you know, we we traded with people. And that's the other thing we've done. We we've met, you know, like I met some people at that Pips thing, and we exchanged contact info. And so again, if they're living out in the Midwest, you know, I can't get you know standard meat. That's another really good meadery in the Chicago area. They don't do any distro. And I say, hey, yeah, give me. You know, I'll go on their website. Hey, they got this blueberry, whatever. Yeah, give me you know a couple cans of that. Ship me those, those two, and I'll send you a bottle of our, you know, here's four or five different ones you can choose from, right? Uh, Oregon, well, a 60-pound pail is going to cost you a boatload of money now to get it just shipped, and, right? So, but can you now pass that cost on the consumer? Probably not in its entirety, right? So, therefore, yeah. your, expense, your expense went up. Your revenue didn't go by with the same amount. Your profit is, is decreased. Beer had the same problem like late last year, early this year. And 
people were talking about, can we raise the price of a pint, a dollar? And then, you know, certain breweries couldn't, and they were kind of freaking out, especially with the loggers who was shipping and, and uh, the grain costs, they all went up. And I really personally haven't seen it. I haven't seen a major uptick in pricing. So I guess they're just eating it, which many of these guys were not profitable to begin with. They cannot, it's only going to mean they're less profitable now. Yeah. I mean, I think right now would be the absolute worst time to start this kind of a business. Your cost, just think of the of the commercial real estate values. Everything is going up, at least in the Charlotte area. Uh, and it's not just the residential, right? So just your cost to, to have a production space and or a taproom space, plus now the shipping costs. Uh, you know, finding employees who want to work, right? All these things mm-hmm. are conspiring against a small business of this type at this point in time to get started. Uh, so if I was on the sideline, I would remain in the sideline for the foreseeable future. If folks are out there listening who are making that you know, contemplative decision about uh, taking the plunge. Well, on that note, you said, I didn't say it, but I've been saying that over and over. So I feel like we could talk about macro stuff in this industry all night, but we're going to wrap it oh, up yeah. there. Again, I want to thank you for sharing. I think what, you, what you've shared with us is a cool, different version of sort of the same story in a different industry, but close enough that it's super relevant. And um, as much as I am definitely sad that you, you tried it three times, it didn't work. The fact that you can still talk about it, be happy about it, and still drink mead and still make mead. I think you won. So congratulations on winning. Sure. Thanks for hanging in, dudes and dudettes. I truly hope this podcast adds value to your life as much as to your career. I hope it's opened your eyes, your heart, and even your mind. I hope you're readied and steadied for the rocky road that lies ahead of you. By now you know you're going to need some salt in your margarita if you hope to have enough grit to finish the round. So here's to double salting the rim of life, motherfuckers. I mentioned earlier the book I wrote in 2019 and revised the hell out of 2020. It is 55,000 words available on Amazon and a fantastic way to support the show. You can also share your favorite episode with friends and foes. That shit helps way more than you might know. Plus, every purchase you make from one of my sponsors directly helps keep me in business. And if you're feeling really squirrely, there's a link in the show notes for how to support the show with a direct donation. But most of all, I appreciate your support by coming back, learning something valuable, and spreading the message to the rest of the world. You are part of the craft beer revolution that will keep the business part strong enough to keep the fermentation part flowing. And I, for one, love the absolute fuck out of each of you. So thanks for being a listener, and I look forward to meeting you all one day. Free play. Media. Media.